Hey, I am Michael Raziel. This is the Win Daily Show. And my guest today, let's see if I can get it, Sue Schneider. There we go. VP of it. Growth and Strategy. I did it in Americas at the Sports Betting Community. Sue, how are you today? Good, good. It's a good day. It's a good day. All of them seem the same, but at least we're having some fun today, right? Right. That's what we like to see. So, Sue, I already told you the question. I just wanted to preface you on it, and we're going to ask it now. What do you do to make sure to win each and every day? Um, well, I live on the Mississippi River, and it's a beautiful spot. It's not always cooperative because I was out for six weeks with high water, but I think just for me to be able to take a few minutes to just – sit and relax and look out at nature. Um, every time somebody comes out to my house, they're going, how do you ever get anything done? Because I would just sit here and be looking out at the river all the time. So I think if there's any one thing that I try to do, and, and we also keep an apartment in a little historic district nearby that's on the Missouri River. So I have kind of a water addiction, as mm -hmm. you might be able to tell. But I think being able to, to look out and just contemplate nature and its beauty kind of allows you to put a lot of other things aside throughout the day. Absolutely. It lets you put everything in perspective too, right? It's just understanding that, hey, we're here. We're here to have a good time, but there's so much else going around. And sometimes you get a little too focused. Not, I mean, maybe that's not the best way to say it. Sometimes you get a little too deep into the work. And yeah. as you said, it's nice to kind of stare out into that river, stare out into nature a little bit, and just kind of see what's going on out there. Let your mind relax and it allows you to kind of get those juices and energy flowing so you can get right back into it, right? Mm -hmm. And to calm down. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, one, one thing that uh, when I did, I, I've been working at home since 2009, but when I did have an office uh, in town, it was like I, that, that time to decompress as you're driving home and just kind of put the, the rest of the day behind you is always useful. Yes, I've been working from home for the last couple of years as well. And it's uh, what what is working from home when you're always home and always working, I guess. So I guess it just turns into life at that point. But I love it. I love everything I do. And we're going to keep it rocking and rolling. So when well, it's been I'm, kind of fun to watch people struggle with yes. people that do used to go and are uh -huh. used to going into the office, having to struggle with work at home. And we're kind of like, you'll get yeah. used to it. You know? Exactly. They get used to it. And I think that's going to be the problem when everyone starts going back to work in the next few weeks and months. I, I know my girlfriend in particular, uh, I live here in, in the New Jersey area. So I know a lot of people that travel into Manhattan for work. You take that hour commute, hour and a half commute, hour 45, depending on the time, both ways Ooh. out of someone's day. They're so much happier. Surprise. Look yeah. at that. If you don't have four hours of commute, waste of your life. So Well, actually, um, I think it's a good thing that in, in the, that regard, because I think mm -hmm. employers now probably are maybe over the hump and realize mm -hmm. that people can be trusted at work and at yes. home. They're not going to be just messing around all day and they will be more productive. A lot of my friends that are now working at home will say, I'm getting a lot more accomplished here. So they're probably getting a lot more accomplished in less time too, right? Yeah. You know, just that opportunity. And again, taking that four hours of commuting potential. I mean, on average, everybody has about a 45 minute commute. So if you take an hour and a half commute out of your day, and now you can shift that to do something else with it, how much more of a happier person do you become at that yeah, point? Yeah, right? I couldn't do that. Oh gosh, <laughs> no, me, me neither. And yeah, I'm, I'm right in that boat, Sue. Hopefully I work from home for the rest of my life and I'll right. be like you, happy, excited. Maybe you live on a river. I'm here in New Jersey, so maybe a beach. I don't know. We'll see where that goes. But <laughs> um, no, I, again, I'm very excited to get to talk to you, Sue. Again, just being in this industry for 25 years, one thing we're trying to do here on the Wind Daily Show is just helping people understand how we got to this point. You know, over the last couple of years, betting and, and, and gambling and DFS obviously have come very much into the lexicon, and it's almost second nature at this point, how quickly things change, right? But you've been, been in the industry for a very long time. What did it look like 25 years ago? What, what was the gaming industry looking like? And did you ever see it kind of evolving into, you know, where we've gotten to today? 
Um, well, I started in 95 and I had been editing a print riverboat gaming publication called Rolling Good Times and the owner said, let's put that online. There's this thing called the internet. This was a way back. And uh, so we did and we became partners in that. And, um, you know, as a result of that, we got in very early on internet gaming and got to know all the people that were all around the world uh, as entrepreneurs starting up. So it's been a really interesting ride. Um, you know, in 99, I, we, she and I split up and I started River City Group, which was putting on events and publications for the internet gambling industry. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, if I had to look back, I, I've been probably most disappointed in the fact that the U.S. has been so phobic about this when the rest of the world, I mean, we for many years never put on any events in the U.S. We'd put them on in Australia and Macau and Canada and, and Europe and Latin America and the Caribbean. And... Um, you know, it's just, it, it's been kind of sad that we uh, didn't embrace the talents of the entrepreneurs that were in the U.S. and mm -hmm. actually, you know, made a few into criminals. As, so, you know, I think that part's been the most disappointing. But if you look globally, um, it's been a, it's been really a lot of fun. Um, it, you know, again, it started out with a very small group of people, people that were very talented, very visionary and put together great products and did a great job with taking care of players. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been fun to watch over the years. It's much more corporate now. I was talking with some, some friends the other night and we were saying, you know, you always hear that about the old days and, and how it just really was much more fun because it was much more cutting edge and, and now it is very corporate. And that, that part is pretty disappointing and it was kind of expected, right? Anything that starts out kind of in this, you know, shadowy type industry, we'll call it, you know, it's only legal. It was only legal in one city in the entire United States, which that part never made sense to me either. But it was always, I mean, how often, you know, I worked at a restaurant when I was 14 and we used to do picks every weekend with the customers. And, you know, we'd all get, you know, we'd all get the, the layout, we all get the spread and we'd say, all right, you know, everybody throw in five bucks. Turns out that's been gambling. I've been gambling. It turns out since I was 14, March Madness pools. What office in America does not do an March Madness exactly. pool at this point, right? Exactly. So it never made sense to me why it took so long for this to come through, as you said. And I guess back in, you know, starting up a publication, an online publication in the 1999, you know, kind of going out on your own and starting to do these events. How did you do that? I mean, again, the internet just started up at that point. Email, I think was still, I mean, starting to come around in 1999, but how did you find these people all over the world? How did you have these conversations and how did you get everybody in one spot to learn and, and share knowledge and, and network with each other? Well, um, you know, it was interesting. We actually started an association in 96 called Interactive Gaming Council. And, um, you know, actually it was because we ran it. It was based out of the U.S., but it had very international flavor. We had people from, you know, South Africa and mm -hmm. all over the world. Um, and it, at one point we had 120 members. I mean, it was really, and I, I was one, because I mentioned this to you, I was one of maybe five women in the room mm -hmm. at any one point in time when we would have our meetings. And I chaired that for eight years, mainly because really most of the people were considered, you know, offshore and didn't really want their, mm -hmm. their mug out there. So I did it. And it was, but it was really a lot of fun, but it was really a situation where, you know, it, it was an unusual circumstance where you had an industry that was basically crying out, regulate us, tax us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't think of very many other industries that were, saying, look, this is a legitimate activity. It's just an extension of what you get in a land-based casino or a racetrack or, or any other kind of gaming um, 
uh, venue and it's just a different delivery mechanism. So why are you so phobic about it? But they have remained phobic about it until, you know, the last five years. Mm-hmm. And so you bring up the fact that, you know, as you said, you're one of five women in, in a room at any given time. And this was back in 1996, you know, as you said, or, or over the, that, that since then, how has the industry either embraced or, or pushed away to having women be a part of this. As you said, I mean, you chaired that association. So kudos to you there. Congratulations. And it was well-deserved. It was like herding cats is what it was. It really was. (laughs) Well, in that case, maybe they just said, Hey, you could do it, but no, I kid, of course, but like how, how, how has the industry changed and what was it like, you know, being a woman, especially in the beginning and now having so many credentials and the network and the knowledge and everything. And do you still have to push through? Do you still have to break down those glass ceilings just to say, Hey, I've been doing this for 25 years. Why won't you listen to me? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't because I'm semi-retired and good for you. People know that, uh, you know, Uh I'm going to say what I'm going to say, but um, you know, there are a couple of really good groups that have arisen um, over the the last four or five years. Uh, There's a global gaming women group that's kind of, emanated out of Las Vegas. There's another group called All in Diversity, which has come out of the UK. And there's another, and there's, now there's an Australian um, uh, women in gaming. So, you know, I think um, it's better. It's definitely better, but it's still a situation where you don't have as many women in upper level management. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that will change because groups like All In and I'm on their advisory board, they, they basically are moving towards saying, look, you need to what you're doing is opening up the talent pool. Um, So please be much more open to the talents and skills of of that sector. Now, I will say iGaming, I thought was pretty male dominated since the last couple of years that I've gotten into the sports betting side of things. It's real male dominant. I mean, um, All In Again is doing a a trader uh, apprenticeship program to try to get more diversity into those Mm -hmm. trading rooms at sports books because they're they are a, a boys club. Um, so it's, you know, it's coming along. It's probably not as fast as we would hope, but mm-hmm. it's, it, it's better. It never is for some reason. I don't understand it. I mean, I grew up, you know, I'm 28 years old, so it never made sense to me. Um, as you said, it's an old boys club and hopefully that does change. How do you think it negatively if, if impacts the industry? As you said, with it being as male dominant as it is uh, from your experience specifically? Well, I think mainly that there are a lot of talented women out there. Um, and so, and, and, you know, it's really a situation where I think, you know, we are now seeing CEOs of some of the gaming Mm -hmm. companies that are, that are women. And, um, so it, it's, it is getting better, but I, you know, I think they're just missing out if they're not more open-minded about who they, um, would entertain as an employee or in management. Right. It, it, it doesn't, again, it still doesn't make sense to me if there's someone that is smart and capable and willing to do a really good job. Sounds like they deserve it, no matter right. who they are or what they do. So, um, yeah, again, never made sense to me, but maybe it's, that's just the uh, it's old habits die hard. I think yes, so. Absolutely. Well, hopefully, we can get those old habits to get out of here one of these days soon. And so, one other thing that I, I wanted to talk about before we get into the sports betting community is you've been the editor in chief for multiple different gaming law reviews. What exactly does that mean, and what exactly does that entail, and and how much do you have your hand in? maybe not creating these laws, but being someone that can then explain them and get them out to the people. So we are all an understanding of what's Mm -hmm. going on. Well, I've always been a policy junkie. I mean, I've just through, even through past, you know, career paths that I've done that, like I ran a social service agency for 12 years and and then I get into a lot of 
you know, flood relief, disaster relief stuff. So I've always loved the policy part of it mm-hmm. uh, and the lawmaking. And um, so what I was asked to do, uh, the editorship of Gaming Law Review, and I was in a, two different positions there in the last 11 years or so, um, it was interesting because I've been in publications for a long time, but a law review, it's a peer-reviewed um, publication, which is a whole different ballgame because it really, you know, I, it's not like I would sit down and edit all this stuff myself. It was like, you have to send it out to other attorneys and get their feedback and the author has to um, make changes. So it, it, and, and they have very high quality. So, you know, I mean, I've never really had a situation where I could go out and solicit a lot of articles and -hmm. probably half of them don't make it into the publication because they're not of a high enough quality. So that took a little getting used to for me, (laughs) but it was really a good experience because again, it's very uh, global in nature and you can see what other jurisdictions around the world are doing and how they're handling some of the decisions that have to be made as gaming, you know, evolves and develops throughout the years. And so how, how does that help develop your network? I mean, obviously it helps develop the knowledge. That's not even a question, but how often are people now reaching out to you just to get a better understanding to see what you think about it? And really just, again, how, how has that been able to help you build so many more relationships because you're at the forefront of helping us all understand what the heck's going on out there? Mm-hmm. I think I've had that for a while with doing the, the events mm-hmm. because we were really seeing, um, and one of the things that we did is we incubated another association called the International Masters of Gaming Law. So I've always been fairly deep into the the legal mm-hmm. side of it. Um, even though I'm not a lawyer, people a lot of times assume I'm a lawyer and I'm not. Um, I actually, my, my, my master's is in psychology, which comes, mm, you know, it's very amazing. helpful every, all the time. And um, so it's, uh, you know, it's just really an interesting uh, type of thing to, to take a look at how policy issues and, and the laws and interpretations of the laws and the case laws are just constantly changing and constantly mm-hmm. evolving. And there are some that are models that you can look at and say, okay, those are best practices and how to handle that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, if I, I know we're going to start getting into the, the sports betting stuff. That's a perfect example. I mean, next week it'll be two years since that mm-hmm. Supreme Court decision. And were it not far the persistence of the state of New Jersey to, you know, I mean, that that got shot down mm-hmm. at just about every level. I think they had something like six or seven decisions on that yep. before they got to the one that really made a difference. And they it turned out, I mean, I never thought sports betting would be live in my lifetime. Really? Would be, would be legal. No, it just, there was such resistance to it. You know, we, we had these laws in place from, um, trying to think when PASPA was, I think it was early 90s. And, you know, we have the Wire Act still to deal with, which uh, keeps people from doing things over state lines, transmitting gaming information over state lines. So that's still complicated because uh, it's the Department of Justice still came back again a couple of years and said, oh, this one decision we had on it, you know, years ago, we're, we're reversing that. So that's now tied up in court, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can get that passed uh get over the hump with the wire act, then I think you'll see a further expansion because then people will be able to pool, uh, like with poker, they'd be able to pool liquidity across mm-hmm. state lines and make for, you know, a bigger, much more attractive uh, environment for the player. 
Yeah, it's it's frustrating. I mean, shout out to New Jersey, obviously. I live here, so that's nice. We did one really, really great thing for the industry, and I'm very <laughs> grateful for that. Um, anything else we've done recently? Whatever. That we can At least we can hang our hat on one thing, which I think is kind of nice. But Well, you know, I think a lot of other states owe them a de- debt of gratitude of because Absolutely. they spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of persistence. And the other states, I mean, we're now up to 20, I think it's 21 states mm-hmm. plus District of Columbia that have ridden along on that. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of states really, uh, can't thank them enough at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, again, I will shout that from the rooftops. I'm from here. So I love it. You know, as I said before, maybe I'll make, move over to the beach, uh, one of these days and you and I can, we can share nice scenic views as we work from home, right. but no, I think it's, it's, it's great. And, and it's, it's, it was really interesting hearing about it. So when everything really started to get in motion, I just got out of high school, so I wasn't super into it or really interested, but kind of over time, just hearing more about it and seeing more about it, getting older and understanding the industry more, it was very impressive how much New Jersey did push to get this through. As you said, it got shot down multiple times. There was a lot of different things that were involved with it and it finally went through. And now look at how much I think New Jersey online in New Jersey alone already has beaten out Nevada in handle in a couple months already and it's only been legal here for a few years at this point so it's pretty impressive mm-hmm. clearly there was a lot of people that wanted it to happen over here and we've just been seeing it across state across state and and that actually leads me to another question specifically about sports betting how frustrating is it from your part you brought up the corporate aspect of it now with each of these states making the licenses and making everything so 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 expensive to get in essentially only allowing for a few different players we've seen DraftKings, FanDuel, points bet not very many not very many companies can really claim a stake. How frustrating is it from your part to see how many entrepreneurs are still out there that are doing great things that will really never get that opportunity because of the the Wire Act, because of these states having the licenses be so, so, so expensive and not really allowing regular people like ourselves to really get in there? Mm-hmm. Well, they started out, If you, again, we've, we've done things very globally and mm-hmm. there, most jurisdictions, most jurisdictions have been much more open toward having online only mm-hmm. um, operators get licensed. In the U.S., it's clearly taken a different turn, and you pretty much have to have some sort of terrestrial venue. Mm-hmm. So it's a track, it's a it's a yeah. casino, it's a you know potentially maybe some card rooms in the future, although they're not very 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 well at the moment with that. But uh, so you know, I think from that standpoint, it's it's been frustrating for people that are in the online only side. Um, but, you know, most of them either through a skin, which is basically kind of a sub license mm-hmm. or through a partnership, um, you know, you're seeing stars and you're seeing DraftKings and FanDuel and Bet365 and a number of other operators that are in that online space. They'll partner up with a land-based facility because frankly, the, most of the land-based facilities don't have the expertise, don't have mm-hmm. the knowledge uh, on the online side. So there, many of them are looking for partners, at least in the short term anyway Mm -hmm. until they can uh you know get their arms around how it works and how it's different than the land-based side absolutely and we've seen you know one uh it's a very interesting one uh, with barstool sports they were just a media company partnering with the land-based casino and now they're going to have their own sports book and a lot is going to come with that so i'm sure that one was very interesting for you to follow along with as well well. there's a couple of uh i think interesting media ones. Some are more mainstream. I mean, mm-hmm. Yahoo's into it. Uh, Fox yep. uh, has Fox bets that they partnered with stars. So, I mean, there are a number of the, the, the folks who have the eyeballs mm-hmm. um, that are now partnering up. And, and I think some of those are probably going to really be the ones to look for because they've, they've got, uh, you know, 
I've got the database. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very interesting and I'm excited to see it. Thankfully I'm here in New Jersey. We can pretty much do everything at this point, yeah. uh, everything that I want to do. So it's well, and, and I want to bring up, you know, you mentioned about the fact that New Jersey was also among the first to, um, you know, to get the other products. They've got mm-hmm. casino online, they've got poker online. And I think that turned out to also be pretty prescient on their part since every land-based casino is closed for an extended mm-hmm. period of time. Uh, so at least, you know, it's bringing some revenue in. So I think there's a conventional wisdom at the moment that other states that maybe didn't go with mobile um, are going to mm-hmm. go back and, and look at that because they're all going to be hungry for revenue at this point. Yeah. Any, any positives that can come out of this pandemic, if that's one of them, we'll take it, especially right. for all those other states. I think that's great. And yeah. just one more question before we do, and I apologize, get to the sports betting community because I just have so many because you've been doing this for so long with each state essentially taking this opportunity on their own. Is it a good thing that maybe we'll have kind of the, you know, little Darwinism, someone will come out with the best idea and then we can implement it? Or is it a a frustrating thing from your perspective to see we're going to have all these laws in all these different places that people like yourself have to deal with? You know, you had to deal with it on a country by country basis. Now you have to add in another potential 50 states. Like, what are the positives and the negatives that can come out of implementing this idea and and these policies in this way? Well, I think really the only positive is that you have a variety of regimes, licensing Mm. regimes and and taxation models and all that, that you can look at to see which one might make for the most successful, you know, commercial Mm -hmm. arrangements out there um, and outcomes. Uh, It's been very frustrating, mainly because many operators and suppliers, software suppliers, that sort of thing, are all multi-jurisdictional at this point. And every um, state is asking for something different and mm-hmm. they want big piles of boxes of materials to, to do the due diligence on the principles and, and things like that. It's very costly, very time consuming. Um, I've moderated a couple panels at regulator association meetings, asking them to consider blockchain for that sort of thing, mm-hmm. because it's just, it's a ridiculous amount of work for operators as they go into state after state after state and it doesn't have to be that onerous so you know there's definitely a downside to it but i guess the upside is you know we can look and see well this one really worked out well and and this one didn't i think one of the things that we want to avoid is getting into a um, contentious arrangement between the regulators and the um the industry i mean if you look at the uk right now it's very um, contentious. Their mm-hmm. gaming commission is just going after people right and left for all kinds of things. And it could be that the industry went too far on some stuff, maybe mm-hmm. with advertising and things like that, that they've caused this clampdown. But I think uh, a very wise regulator many years ago, when I was first starting, was was saying then that he thought the internet gaming side of, of the gaming industry is always going to have to be... Um, in partnership with the regulators because Mm -hmm. they're always going to be ahead of the pack. I mean, not that much changes with the land-based facilities, but on the online side, there are innovations every day. And that's where it gets to things like the startups. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we have our uh, event with the betting on sports America, we're having a startup competition because there are some tremendous ideas out there right now. 
they, they tend to be more on the supplier side, mm -hmm. which is fine, but there are some great ideas and some people that just with uh, a little bit of help and, and support can really come up with some, some great innovations. And that's the nice thing about this industry, right? It's something that people can get passionate about. It's something that, mm -hmm. you know, entrepreneurs can start thinking of cool ideas. And, and I've had this conversation with a couple other people in some capacity. And it's, it's really interesting because you're not really starting the, the industry at zero dollars, right? There was billions and billions of dollars being bet on here in the United States every year, whether it's legal or illegal. Yeah. So now with the opportunity to make it legal, people like myself, like I didn't really bet too much when it was offshore books, but now that it's legal, absolutely. I'll throw a 10, mm -hmm. 15, $20 bet down every once in a while. And with that, like how, how much more opportunity will come for a lot of these companies? Because again, it's not like you have to find the industry. It's not like you have to find the people. They're all out there. Yeah. There's a right? market there. There's already, the although that there. leads to a whole nother, uh, debate right now is whether mm -hmm. um, you're able to really switch people over from offshore to mm -hmm. licensed and regulated operators uh, because those those players I mean the the new industries as they're building up here in the US now may get someone like yourself mm -hmm. who might be a more casual better but the the, the people who are into this much more mm -hmm. you know how do you get them to uh, transfer over there was actually just an article that I can't, I just read this morning, but I can't remember who put it out where they were talking about that. And they were pointing to New Jersey and, and saying, you know, for example, the offshore books tend to uh, extend people credit. There's no mm -hmm. regulator in the U.S. that's going to allow that. It's yeah. just not going to happen. So, um, you know, those are, those are the considerations as well as whether the other big debate is whether the, the software um, suppliers that are out there, most of them are European. Mm -hmm. And does that European model translate over here because those those players are much more sophisticated much more involved and if we're trying to get to mainstream casual betters it's got to be something really simple for mm -hmm. them to be able to get in and not you know just get bogged down in how complicated it might be absolutely and you make a good point i mean the 80 20 rule it's, it's been around in business for a very long time 80 percent of your revenue comes from 20 percent of your right. customer base so as, as you're right maybe they get you know the 20 percent that i'm in where it's you know just casual every once in a while but the, the 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 men and women that are betting heavy heavy amounts it's probably going to be into that other route so well and hopefully i think everybody's hopeful that that number will flip that the casual course. better the mainstream better will mm -hmm. be the 80 percent at some point but they've they've got an educational mm -hmm. you know effort that they've got to do to make sure that people feel comfortable that they know what they're doing um and that there's credibility which is what the regulate regulatory process mm -hmm. should offer Absolutely. And that, that's a great point. You know, hopefully it does switch uh, one of these days. And again, the, the tax implications for it doesn't ever make sense. It took this long. Um, so let's Well, the other fear, if I, yeah. if you don't mind, this one is of your the fears, show. Give okay. It to me also. You're perfect. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the fine, the, the concerns right now is with states scrambling to make up for lost revenue that mm -hmm. they've had in the past few months is that is it low hanging fruit for them to start jacking up tax mm. rates uh, for this sort of thing. And again, I, I don't see that happening in a short term because the casino companies have just taken an enormous hit. Exactly. Uh, but that's the concern uh, is whether something like gaming is, is, you know, a place that they could easily, you know, even if, if a state had a 10 or 12% mm -hmm. tax rate now, is that something they might look at in the future and it gets jacked up to 20% or something mm -hmm. like that? Yeah, that's a really great point. And um, sports betting is a lot of people don't realize there's like a 5% margin on that. Mm -hmm. So it's a low margin operation to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, there's so much 
that we still have to learn. And thankfully, there's been other countries that have been doing it before us. So as, yeah. as, you, as we said before, we can see what state is doing it correct. But we also can see, you know, hopefully we're not starting at step A in this, right? right? We're starting a couple letters down because we've already seen places like the UK that have been doing this for a while, places in Asia that have been doing this for a very long time. So it's very interesting to me to see how that's been going on. And then so with, with what you're doing, uh, Vice President of Growth and Strategy with the sports betting community, so what... You know, as you said, you didn't actually think you'd ever see uh, legal gambling here in the United States in your lifetime. Thankfully, we were able to do that. We got right. it through. Passport was overturned, as you said, in about a week or two. Uh, we'll have that, the, the two-year anniversary. So what have you been doing with the sports betting community, and how have you been able to put together these events, put together this community, and grow the understanding of what's really going on here in, in the Americas? Well, SBC, Sports Betting Community, is a group that's been going for, I think, maybe 10 years now. And they're friends of mine who um, really operate things. They have a very similar arrangement to what we have with River City Group with publications and um, events. So um, really, when that happened, I just reached out to uh, Raz Sajmark, who's the primary owner, there are some other owners too, and said, you know, do you need any help coming into the U.S. because can't pass this up. I don't want to start mm -hmm. anything new. Yep. But, uh, you know, so it's been a lot of fun. And, and um, last April, we started with Betting on Sports America there at the Meadowlands mm -hmm. uh, Expo Center. And uh, we were due to have the other, the second edition of that last week, but obviously that got uh, blown out of the water. So we had moved that back, um, I don't know, probably two months ago already to December 1st through the 3rd. So we're still hoping, fingers crossed, that we can pull off that. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Uh, but in the meantime, we did a big digital summit um, last week that was primarily aimed at the European market, but we did uh, have some some tracks for the U.S. Mm -hmm. So uh, so now we're planning on doing a U.S.-focused one on our time zones um, in uh, July 14th through the 16th. So, and we're getting a lot of enthusiasm. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and And Normally, uh, betting on Sports America is primarily sports betting related, but given the circumstances right now, I mean, the irony of having 20 states where you can now bet and there's no product to bet on is just amazing <laughs> to something. me. Um, but in, in the one that we're doing in July, we're looking at lottery, we're looking at, you know, iGaming, we're looking at kind of across the board, uh, not just sports betting. We'll, we'll get back to just sports betting when things return to some semblance of normal. Some semblance of normal. And it looks like at least this weekend, in a couple of days, we do have uh, UFC coming up uh, yeah. you know, as of recording or May 7th right now. So UFC is going to be coming up soon. Obviously, golf is coming back as well yeah. soon, which we're very excited about. So NASCAR. we agree. NASCAR. Yes, NASCAR. I mean, as we've seen, uh, people are playing a lot of betting a lot on esports um, mm -hmm. because it's the only thing that's going on. So once I do think some of hey, the there's Belarusian football. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. And now there's Korean baseball. baseball. I've been watching that. I wake up at <laughs> six fifteen in the morning. I could throw on ESPN <laughs> two and see real baseball in front of me. I don't know who's playing. It's kind of cool actually because you see every once in a while you'll see like hey. Aaron Altair, he was on the Mets. That's kind of cool. So it's, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of that going on. So it has been a lot of fun. And so with uh, sports betting, with the SBC, how, you know, you said that they started 10 years ago, uh, give or take. How long have they and you specifically been gearing up for the actual repeal of PASPA, especially with as much as we saw in the community in New Jersey specifically, kind of poking and prodding. And eventually you kind of started to realize like, all right, you know, it might not be a couple more years, but this is going to happen. How did you guys at SBC gear up for this actual momental, mo monumental event? 
Well, I have to be honest with you. I'm not sure that very many people in the industry thought it was going to happen. Really? Um, yeah, I think there might might have been some super optimists mm -hmm. that were out there saying, yeah, I think this has got a chance. But um, I, I wasn't in it just because, you know, after you lose it, however many levels mm -hmm. below that, um, and just given the makeup of the court, I wasn't that hopeful. So I'm not sure there was that much gearing up that was doing. I mean, people were thinking in the back of their heads, if, mm -hmm. if this is going to happen, let's be prepared and, and be ready to pull the trigger on, on some of this stuff. But, um, you know, it, it's, it surprised, I think a lot of people, myself mm -hmm. included. So what, what were, so I guess, did you, I don't want to say get blindsided because obviously again, you know, at least in that you know, couple months leading up to it, it seemed like something was going to happen potentially. Mm -hmm. So with, you know, as you said, you didn't want to start something new again. So the opportunity to then start creating events and, and hosting as you did and, and really being able to put together things like you have throughout your career, how were you able to kind of just flip that switch? And, and, you know, once they brought you on, you were able to say, all right, I, I, I can do this. I know this, this, and this. How did you able to just start, you know, kind of snap those fingers and get these events up and running as quickly as you did? Well, and I think there, there was an inkling in the previous December when they had the oral arguments. Mm -hmm. And when you listen to the questions of the justices and, uh, you know, the, you, you had some thought, it was like, <laughs> maybe there's a hope. But I think, you know, realistically from a business standpoint, uh, SBC is – again, similar to what I had in that mm -hmm. it was, you know, very small, very nimble, very creative and very able to just flip the switch, as you mm -hmm. say, and say, okay, let's do this. Let's do it then. Let's get the right people involved. And again, because they had really, really deep roots with, with doing the sports betting events in Europe, mm -hmm. um, they were able to draw on a lot of expertise just right out of the chute. Um, so I think that was probably one of the biggest advantages of, of having people that have been doing this for years be able to come and say, yeah, this is kind of how it has worked for us. It may, it may or may not have to be adapted in the U.S., but his, this is how it's worked for us in the past. And so with that, I mean, we, again, we can kind of see what has happened in the past and be able to, to hope it will work then again. But you in particular, you know, how did you start developing this community here in the United States? How did you start adding value to them where this became not just something that they had to go to, but something that they got to go to? Right. Well, I think the, the reason that they were interested in, in having me involved was because I, you know, over the years, many years, you know, I've dealt with my strategy in the past has always been in the U.S. We're used to dealing with partner associations. Mm -hmm. We've got great gaming media. Um, and so it was just basically working a lot of those existing relationships. Everybody over here was eager to get involved from the standpoint is like, oh, OK, we got this now. What do we do? And whether it was American Gaming Association or some of the tribal gaming associations or the lotteries or the regulators, um, you know, f most people were very eager to get involved and, mm -hmm. and learn, number one, and number two, um, be very useful in terms of saying, you know, this is how we're going to have to change things and, and tweak it a little bit to be viable in the U.S., Absolutely. And that makes sense. Again, you, we do have to tweak things. You have to understand who your target audience is, who your market is, and who you're trying to go after. And so, you know, you already spoke about how you're, you're pushing the events back. You're starting to make them virtual. That's kind of something that we've seen just about any event that was starting, you know, in March, April, May, now, possibly June. We'll see what happens in July. What, um, 
what are you trying to do like in the future? How do you, do you see this, everything kind of coming back to normal in some capacity where you can kind of put those events on like you have in the past? Well, it's interesting. I've been on a couple of webinars of events producers mm -hmm. and because the whole, that whole side of, you know, face-to-face -face events yep. is, it's kind of like what the gambling industry just got hit really hard because everything just came to a screeching halt. So there, people are trying to, sort out how does it go when people do come back number one you've got to have enough people that have confidence that they're willing mm -hmm. to fly to wherever you are and to come in and be with a group of you know large group of people that are there um so it was interesting hearing how some of them are trying to you know think through everything from like even a self-service registration kiosk get it go up touch it and you know i mean mm -hmm. it, it's just going to be a real different attitude and everybody's kind of making it up as they go along. There's going to be a lot of trial and error because we just don't know how people will react. I mean, I think the days of, of going up and shaking hands and giving big hugs to your friends that you've known for years is probably going to be stymied for a while. So I don't think it's going to necessarily be a really quick comeback to, mm -hmm. to, to the way it was. It's, it's going to be a real evolutionary process. I completely agree. And I don't know if we'll ever see Exactly and it's the same the with the concerts was. business, yep, any, events, any, yeah. any events, sporting events, the whole bit. I mean, look at how the sporting, uh, the clubs that are, you know, the teams that are looking at, at mm -hmm. doing something, you know, that's why uh, last week we had someone from PGA uh, speaking and they are starting with their, you know, no crowd, but mm -hmm. at least play the game, but they're not a team contact sport. Exactly. So that's one of the reasons it's the same with NASCAR. I mean, those are the reasons that they're, able to do that sort of thing. So um, you really have to look at it from scratch and see what's doable in the short term. And then hopefully someday we'll be back to normal, but mm -hmm. it, it'll be a while. I, I hope we get back to normal. I miss hugging some of my friends. Love my I girlfriend know. a lot, but I kind of miss hugging some of my other friends as well. And then uh, the last question I have for you is, you know, again, being in the industry for so long and, you know, seeing what has happened over time, what are some of the, I guess, immediate, maybe short term goals that the industry has or, or some of the changes that you can see in the near-ish future that could significantly help the industry specifically here in the United States? Well, um, I mean, from our, from our standpoint, mm -hmm. just in, in specifically, I mean, after we had this digital summit last week, we saw that people still really want to connect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had networking, we had conferences, we had trade show floor, we had the whole bit with this platform that we had. And so people still really want to connect and still want to know that there's some business to be done after. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, from our standpoint, I think that's why we've taken this digital route and, and are going uh, full speed ahead with that. I think in general, um, there's, a, there's an interest in knowing how this will sort out. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we're, we're up to over 20 states that have done this. We probably would have been on track to get another five to seven legal this year, but even state legislators yeah. for the most part, legislatures aren't even open at this point yet. So that that kind of came to a grinding halt. Hopefully that'll pick back up. But but this is our legislative season in the spring for mm -hmm. most states. So, um, you know, I, so I think it's just more, I think most folks are looking ahead and just trying to prep themselves. Uh, first of all, how do they make it through the short term? Because there are companies, frankly, that, that won't across the board, across the whole economy. You know, there's restaurants, there's all, there's all kinds of 
of companies that uh, just don't have the wherewithal to survive. But those that I think are are healthy enough are, are just looking forward to trying to, to figure out how do we gear up and get ready for what we know will be, uh, you know, a re- um, coming back to, mm-hmm. to some semblance of normal again. I hate to keep using that term because I'm not sure we're ever going to have a normal like we had before, but uh, we'll be adapting. I mean, one of the things about our industry and particularly on the iGaming side is it's a very resilient. It's very, very resilient. It's a lot of very talented people. And, uh, you know, so I, I have faith that there's going to be a lot of those coming through with some really great ideas. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic in that regard. I am as well. We're excited to see it. And Sue, this was absolutely fantastic. Sue Schneider, VP of Growth and Strategy of the Americas at Sports Betting Community. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you.